0: Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at 31 through 34. Romans 8, 31 through 34. And we're going to read, to get a head start into this passage, 28 through 34. So read along with me, Romans eight, twenty-eight through 34. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, And thus ends this reading of God's wholly inspired and inerrant word. Well, the Oakland Hills golf course in Bloomfield is world-renowned. It's hosted some of the most prestigious tournaments in golf history. And ever since Ben Hogan said in 1951, I am glad that I brought this course, this monster, to its knees. It has carried the nickname The Monster. Well, in 1996, the Monster held the U.S. Open golf tournament, and a pastor friend of mine was invited as a guest of one of the golfers. Steve Jones was the golfer's name. At the time, he was well out of the top 50 golfers, and he actually wasn't sure if he'd make the cut in this difficult course. And so day one was important for my pastor friend to go, and so if they wanted to go, they, they had to go day one, and so they went. Surprisingly, though. Steve played pretty well. So my friend and his wife kept coming back, and as the tournament progressed, Steve was actually in contention to win the whole thing. And it came actually down to the last hole on the last day of the tournament, and Steve Jones did what no one expected and won the U.S. Open. Not only did he go and speak with my pastor friend and his wife after he had made the winning shot, he actually invited them into the country club for the winner's reception. And so they got to go into this elaborate clubhouse where they feel completely out of place with their Target and Walmart clothes uh, full of $1,000 shirts and dresses, right? And then they go in to go into the reception hall and they are stopped by security And they tell my friend, sorry, only those with the invitation are allowed to come. And before my friend could say anything, the security guard got more aggressive. And he said, you're going to have to leave right now, sir. Uh, And he starts to look around for his friends to help escort him out. And in God's providence, at that exact moment, around the corner comes a group of security guards and Steve Jones, the champion. He was immediately aware and saw what was going on, and and he said to the security guard, it's okay, they're with me. And so my friend goes in to the reception with all the rich people. (laughs) Well, that's what King Jesus does for us. He looks at all that seems to mount up against us and assures us it's okay there with me. And we have plenty against us. Plenty of things trying to keep our eyes off of Christ and escort us out of God's presence. Struggles with sin out there and sin in here. We struggle through all types of suffering and physical pain, the pain of loss, financial stress, Anxieties about the future, about the future of our kids. But through it all, we need to remember from eternity past, I'm with Jesus. And so, verse 31 is abundantly true. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, as we study this morning, we're going to explore what you do when you know that God is for you. What you do when you know that God is for you. These are four ways our lives reflect faith in God's certain plan for our life. Paul begins this glorious chapter with perhaps one of our favorite verses in the whole of scriptures. Even as, as Paul finishes lamenting his struggle with sin in chapter seven, he cries out in despair, oh, wretched man that I am, because he still struggles with sin. And then he reminds us in chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, to be in Christ is to be covered by His blood, to be forgiven of sin, to be given a certain hope of eternal life. That saving work is made effectual in our lives because God, the Holy Spirit, does something in our lives. We see this chapter 8, verse 15. He says, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You see, the full weight of the triune God works to secure our salvation, to save us from our sin if God is for us, who can be against us? But then we are told being a part of God's family does not guarantee we get a pain-free, suffering-free life now. Look at verse 17 again. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And how do we know we're fellow heirs with Christ? What does he say in verse 17? Provided we suffer, Really? For that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, I like the glorified part, but suffering? We're only children if we suffer with him? Oh, beloved, suffering is promised in this life. And we don't want to minimize the pain that we experience, the immense challenge it is to turn to God when we feel like we can barely keep our heads above water. But God wants to comfort us, to remind us that suffering, suffering is a part of life. And he will always be there to help us in our weakness. Read down Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with our groanings that are too deep for words. If God is for us, who can be against us? fact is because the Spirit intercedes for us as we groan, as we aren't even sure if we know what to pray, that God works all things out for good. Verse 28, so we certainly know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, it is because God is working in us that all things, including suffering things, can work out for our ultimate good. This doesn't mean we get everything we want, but all things work to conform us to the image of Christ, and all things work ultimately then for our good. Now, some might interject and wonder, but if there is so much evil in the world, isn't there some amount of pointless suffering that goes on? I mean, is there always really a reason for our suffering? And so Paul follows up and reminds us God's work in our lives was ordained from eternity past. All suffering is God's purposed suffering. It is allowed in our life to work explicitly for our good. And because God's plans are certain. Because God's will can never be thwarted. And his work in the Christian's life is set from eternity past on into eternity future. Romans 8, 29, 30 say, So we know that God works all things for our ultimate good, always. And so we know that God is for us. So what do we do when we know that God is for us? First, you ask God how you can grow. Number one, what do you do when you know God is for you? You ask God how you can grow. Well, as you share the gospel with friends or neighbors or even complete strangers in the park, you'll discover a very common way that people think of religion. They think of religion as an avenue for self-improvement. How many have met somebody like that, right? I think we we all have. It's a way to find peace in the unexplainable. Maybe a way to persevere through suffering and anxiety. Perhaps even a way to make sense of the world. So if they have some background in Christianity, many people will say something like this. Well, I like Jesus plus Buddha. You got some things right too. I like Jesus plus Stoicism. Certainly is an interesting philosophy. I like Jesus plus my wellness coach who helps me make sense of this world. I like Jesus plus Yoga. It's very common for people to look all over for meaning and purpose in their life and to mold their own truth for what works best for them, right? For people to say something like, you know what, we just need to have faith and faith and all things are going to work out well in the end. No, nebulous that is, right? Of course, the more you read the Bible, the more you realize what God's true equation is. Jesus, plus nothing, equals everything. You can't have a nebulous faith in faith, a Jesus plus mindset. Christianity is realizing that God does everything for you. And all you can say, I'm with him. We're all, my pastor friend of mine, going into the reception and not being able to be in because of all sorts of things. And the only way we get in is we say, you know what, I'm with him. It's not, I got Jesus and I figured these other things out and they give me meaning in life. No, meaning comes in life through Christ and Christ alone. Look at verse 31. See, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now you notice that first question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, these things here could be all the things up to this point in Romans, but really the closest, most obvious reference to these things is the unbreakable and certain chain of events in verse 29 and 30. And what I love about 29 and 30 that helps us understand that these are an unbreakable chain is he repeats each word twice to show that they are connected together like a chain and that they can't be broken. Look at verse 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, and remember, foreknown is to foreloved, Purposed ahead of time to love those who would be his children. He also then predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the goal of God's choosing us? It's to make us like Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers to bring Christ glorious. And then verse 30 says, and those whom he predestined. He also called. And so when God chooses us before the foundation of the world, he then also brings about the time in which we will come and follow him. He brings a gospel call into our lives and he brings that moment where we effectually follow him. And those whom he called, he what? Justified. Declared righteous. That's the only way you get to heaven. You're only getting to heaven because God has declared you righteous because only righteous things get into heaven. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I love how he says that in the past tense as if it has already happened, and yet this is something that we have to look forward to, our future glory. See, if you are in Christ, if you belong to God, then your future glory is just as certain as God's past actions. Obviously, this is an overwhelming and precious truth for sufferers, for those who are laden with anxiety, for those struggling with anger and unforgiveness. So Paul asks a question that we all need to ask. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? He's not saying that he's speechless. He's saying, what shall I say, think, do in response to God's profound work in my life? You see, the more clearly you see how God works, the more you realize your only response is to go to God and say, what shall I do now? How should my life be different? And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not just saying, you get saved only through me. But he says, you get saved and you live life through me the all-encompassing eternal power of God to be sovereign over everything propels us to always and only come to him and say, God, I need you. Help me grow. God, I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. What shall I say to these things? How should my life change? And we find comfort and motivation to lean into God with the response. If God is for us, who can be against us? So don't just read the Bible as a task or some chore. Read the Bible and ask God, God, how do you want me to change? How should I think differently about you? How does this change how I think about me and my dependence on you? How can I grow to be more like Christ? Christianity isn't a set of facts about some historical figure named Jesus. It is a way of life. In the new Star Wars series, the Mandalorians repeat a phrase. What do they say, if you've been watching that? This is the way, right? This is the way. After like every significant thing, they say, this is the way. It's meant to confirm what they believe and help them all follow the Mandalorian creeds, their way of living. Do you know where they got that phrase, this is the way? From the Bible, from Christianity, In the book of Acts, before Christians called themselves Christians, you know what they called themselves? Followers of the way. The Jews and many Gentiles mocked them for this, but early Christians recognized that Jesus said, I am the way. And when he says, I am the way, it doesn't mean he was like the one time decision that you need to make. He said, no, this is the path of living that I live. I am the way. To live for the Christian then is to live for Christ, to follow the way. He is not some add-on to your otherwise decent life. And the more you know, the more you understand God's sovereign power in saving and sustaining you. When you know God is for you, you come to God depending on him daily to grow and live. And you ask God, how can you help me grow today to follow your way. And yet your growth isn't just dependent on your strength. Point number two here, you expect God's grace to endure. Number two, what do you do when you know God is for you? You expect God's grace to endure. You expect God to gift you with everything you need to grow, to be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. Do you remember what grace means? I I think sometimes we're confused because the way we use grace is uh, basically a substitute for kind. If I were to say up to one of you, you know what? You're so gracious. You're basically saying, oh, you're very, very kind, you know, and and like a, a very swell person to be around, right? That's not really the best understanding of grace. You see, grace refers to a gift that is given that we don't deserve. And God's grace gift doesn't just save us. It doesn't just cover us from his wrath. It isn't just a grace gift of salvation in Jesus. No, God's grace is how we are still alive and breathing today. God's grace sustains us, grows us physically and spiritually, helps us suffer well. That's a grace gift from God. And the more you realize that God is for you from eternity past, the more you realize his grace just keeps on giving. And central to God's grace is, of course, the gift of Christ. So look at verse 32, Romans 8, 32. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. So he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, the greatest gift of all is that God didn't spare his own son. So won't he also continue to give us everything we need to grow, to be strengthened in the midst of our trials or whatever comes up? Some of you are new parents in this room. Many of you are new parents in this room and are starting to figure out what it means to be a mom and a dad. And, and you're also figuring out that you can love more than you ever expected or realized you knew how to love. I still remember taking Eli, my son, home from the hospital, my, my oldest, and holding him in our apartment for the very first time and just looking at him for like an hour being like what is going on seeing all those tiny features and like how is his nose that small i mean my nose is this big how does this happen and i remember looking and seeing every pore on his face every hair on his head and just being enamored with this beautiful little boy in my hands There's something absolutely incredible about your son or your daughter. And that's the emotional weight of what God gave up for us. It isn't just that God arbitrarily and coldly chose us before time because we were so amazing and lovely. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Died, God didn't just choose a lovely people. God chose sinful, rebellious people and also chose to give up Jesus, his only son, for you. The only way to be reconciled to God, to have eternal life, to escape God's justified wrath, his fair punishment that we deserve in hell, the only way is for God to give up. His son. Notice it says in the middle of verse 32, you do not spare his own son, but gave him up. That word gave up his son is a fascinating word that the father actually gave up the son for us because you see, it is that same word to give up, deliver over, It's used for Judas' actions. For Judas delivered Jesus up to the chief priests, according to Mark 3.19. Herod and the Jewish people, literally the same word, delivered Jesus over, Acts 4.27. Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified, Mark 15.15. Even we are said to deliver him over. First Corinthians 15 3 and Galatians 1 4. But behind every one of those deliverances that happened to bring Christ to the cross, we see God. God gave him up. God delivered him over. Do you see the weight of this? God didn't just sit idly by while a son was tortured by sinful men or demons. Not at all. God is the one who gave him up. What was the most intense part of Jesus' suffering? Wasn't some demon. Wasn't some, you know, man that was suffering him. It was God the Father's wrath poured out for the sins of humanity while he hung on the cross. God gave him up for us. I I want you to see this even more clearly. Go go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This isn't just some new message that Paul made up. This is what Christians had always taught. That Jesus died because God meant him to die. God planned for him to die. God gave him up to die for us sinners. It fulfills what Isaiah 53.10 says. It was the will of the Lord to crush the Messiah. And now in Acts, Peter himself says the same thing on the day of Pentecost. The first sermon that is preached to the masses. He says the same thing. God is the one who gave him up. Look then at Acts chapter two, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, there is something working in concert here, isn't there? God is the ultimate purpose. He is the ultimate sovereign. He delivered up his son, and yet he did it through the hands of sinful men, and they did exactly what they desired to do. Peter doesn't downplay the role of men, but he clearly shows who's the sovereign here, doesn't he? Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I, we looked at this last week and we're remi- reminded this is the passage where uh, the apostles are praying to God and they're focusing on God's sovereignty to give them strength and boldness to continue to preach the gospel. And they say, Acts 4, verse 24, the middle of the verse, the prayer begins Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then he continues, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, O God, and your plan, O God, had predestined to take place. So God deliberately gave up his son according to his plan because it's the only way that he could rescue a people for himself. The emotional weight of this sacrifice is meant to cut deep who can imagine giving up their own children for another? It's gut-wrenching. And yet God did. It was the only way. It was the only way to be fair. So some people say, oh, well, you know what? If God is God, couldn't he just say, you know what? Poof, sin's gone. Forgive them all. It doesn't matter. He didn't need to do that. Would he be fair? No, because from the very beginning, he said the consequences of sin is death. And every sin must be punished. And sin then has to be dealt with. And everybody who had been living up through Jesus' time in history had to do something again and again and again. What was that thing? Kill an animal in their place, kill an animal in their place. The Jewish religion is a bloody, bloody religion because they knew that without a substitute sacrifice for sins, they could not stand before God. And God says, nothing unrighteous can come before me. And so he had to send Jesus. He had to send a substitute sacrifice to cover finally once and for all every sin that has ever been committed in your life so that we could know that we could be right with God. This is the heart of the gospel. Verse 32 of Romans 8 is said to be the heart of the gospel. Because it reminds us, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because the gospel isn't just that Jesus came to die, but the gospel is also that Jesus rose again from the dead so that you can have hope of eternal life too. And the gospel is turning and putting our trust and our faith in him and him alone. And so this reminds us that if God didn't did this amazing, massive thing by giving up his own son, won't he give you grace and strength for the day? Of course. So Paul reminds us, as profound as God's grace is at the cross, His grace continues to abound still more. So he says at the end of verse 32, right? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Expect more grace gifts. Expect God's grace to endure in your life. Now what might God's ongoing grace look like in your life? Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. You see, God's grace includes beautiful sunrises, a new baby. It includes sweet times in prayer and Bible reading. It includes a family fun night and a great concert. But God's grace is not limited to the things that we initially enjoy. In his grace, God also gifts us suffering. Look at Philippians 1 verse 7. Paul says to the Philippians, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, rejoicing and sure of their salvation, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Oh, grace, remember, it's that gift. What what does this grace gift look like? How are they partaking with Paul of his grace gift? Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You mean your imprisonment is a grace gift and those who partake in his imprisonment with him, I, I assume join him in some way, that they're gifted this imprisonment? Yes, that's what he's saying. And then he continues to make it even more clear. Go to the end of Philippians 1, verse 29. It's even more clear. for it has been granted. You know what that word granted is? It's the same word as grace. It has been grace gifted to you. What? That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. See, part of God's grace gift in your life is that you believe in him and that you suffer. Well, oh, beloved, Expect God's grace to endure in all things, in the good, the beautiful, the sublime, and in the hard, the ugly, and the gut-wrenching. And as you face suffering, remember, it too is from God. So lean into his promise from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is one of those fighter verses. Just uh, write this down, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Phenomenal verse to make sure you have at the ready. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Amen? God will not forsake his children. Keep 1 Corinthians ten thirteen at the ready. He will not let you go beyond what you can bear. And along the way, he also makes so many of our steps sweet. When you know that God is for you, who can be against you? Third reaction to knowing that God is for you. Number three, you stand confident in spite of your sin. Go back to 1 Corinthians 8, I mean uh, Romans 8. Number three here, you stand confident in spite of your sin. Inevitably, daily, and sometimes very many times in an hour, we sin. Occasionally, you are quite aware of the struggle, and at other times, you're not even aware of it. You might not even realize it. It even comes up unexpectedly. And yet, once you realize that things like lacking self-control, anger in your heart, not giving God the glory for your success, that those things are all sin, conviction over our ongoing sin should rightly grow. I think that's why Paul, towards the end of his life, calls himself the foremost of sinners. You see, as he is growing and growing more mature, he's realizing, man, I am not holy and righteous and good. He was more aware of his sin. And yet, even as we struggle with sin, we must return to God's unbreakable chain from eternity past. He intimately foreknew us. He intimately loved us. He chose us before there was even a twinkle in your father's eye. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He called us. He justified us. And he will bring us to glory. And so, even as charges over our sin mount up in our mind, grace abounds that's his point in verse 33 read read verse 33 who shall bring any charge against god's elect charge there is, is an important word charges is courtroom language and who brings charges against us it certainly could be the great accuser satan and it certainly could be our own conscience sometimes it's a family member who points out our sin and most of the time, these are not unjust charges. For we are guilty before a holy God, no doubt. But where is our confidence? Our confidence, it's, it's in the standing that we have before God. And two words are used to remind us that God is for us here. What are the two words that are used? How does God describe us? Elect and justified. Justified. Elect. The elect are the chosen ones by God before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. The elect are a way to describe every Christian. Not God looking down on the corridors of time and seeing who will choose him. The elect are those that God chooses. And the justified, the justified are the ones who have been declared righteous before God, whose sins have been fully, permanently covered by Christ. You know, the Bible never presents election, God's sovereignty, his intimate, loving foreknowledge as something to be explained away, but as a rich source of encouragement for Christians. It's a glorious reminder that if God is for us, then no charge can stand against us. Before time, God elected us. Before time, God was for us. And so our status with God as beloved children, as righteous, as covered by Christ's blood, as justified, completely forgiven, all of that status is permanent. And so nobody can bring a charge against God's chosen ones. And so we remain confident in spite of our struggles with sin that God is for us. Now, can I have a pastoral moment real quick with you? One of the regular struggles that so many of us have once we are confronted with this biblical teaching of election is to wonder, am I elect? Am I I one of the chosen ones? I mean, wouldn't it be easier if all Christian had this small E kind of tattooed on the back of their neck and all we had to do was kind of like shave the right spot and find it? And we know, right? And we know for sure I was elect. Instead, some of us wonder quite often, am I chosen? Am I elect? And we might struggle with this. The more we become aware of our sin or realize how we don't delight in God as we ought. But let me be clear. The Bible never instructs us, try to determine if you're elect. Nowhere. Nowhere. Now, where does it say? Search diligently to see if you can find that E tattooed to the back of your head. And the Bible says, repent and believe. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want to know if you're elect? You trust in Jesus. You trust that Christ alone has paid the penalty for your sin. And you've died to self and you follow Christ with your whole heart. See, the trouble is there are some who see standing confident in spite of your sin and they'll they'll see that phrase and they'll think, you know what? That's great. I can continue to sin. I can continue to do X, Y, and Z and it doesn't matter. God still forgives me. I'll just try it and change it a little bit later. You know, I'm young, gotta live a little, right? Right? Or maybe you're old and you just think, you know what, I'll stop someday. But you know that God's grace is never a license to sin. Go back to Romans chapter 6. Paul's confronted the same thought before. As a result of God's lavish grace, as a result of God's lavish, complete forgiveness, as a result of saying that we can stand confident before God in spite of our sin, chapter 6, Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Oh, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In other words, we died to self in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Oh, beloved, if you see God's grace, if you see God uh, being for you as some license to sin, You don't actually believe in Jesus, do you? You don't actually think he's God and worthy of all your worship and all your devotion, do you? If you did, you would walk in a newness of life. That's pretty clear. And yet, even as we walk in a newness of life, just charges come against us because why? We still struggle with sin we still fail, and when we do, we come humbly back to God, confident even, because we know that our sins are totally covered, so that's where Romans 8.33 comes in. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against God's chosen ones? It is God who justifies. God is for us from eternity past to eternity future. So Christian, if you turn from self and desire to follow Christ and you've died to self and follow Christ in that newness of life, not perfectly, but if that's the trajectory of your life, if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then stand confident in spite of your sin. Well, there's one final reaction to knowing God is for you. Number four here, you quickly turn from sin to the living Christ. You quickly turn from sin to the living Christ. Not only are we confident when charges are brought against us, we quickly turn away from that sin and turn towards our everlasting fountain of grace. We turn to Jesus. He's our great high priest, our great mediator, seated at the right hand of God the Father, sitting there with nail-pierced hands, spear-pierced side, wounds which show that our sins, our condemnation, are covered. Romans 8, 34, read the first part with me. Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. No condemnation because God purposed our sins to be on Christ before the foundation of the world. Christ was crucified as our payment, but he was raised to secure the deal. You know, this is why Protestants have steadfastly refused to use the crucifix, right? Protestants don't generally have crucifix jewelry. Protestants don't put crucifixes up in their house. You know what a crucifix is, right? It's a, the it's a cross with Jesus hanging on the cross. That's a fixture in every Roman Catholic church. Because central to Roman Catholic theology is the Mass, The mass is like a mourning, a service of mourning. Why? Because a death had to happen that day in that mass. And what is that death? That death is Jesus' death again because Jesus had to be crucified afresh for sins. And they believe miraculously the substance of the bread and the wine turns into the body and blood and Christ is crucified again. And that's why Roman Catholic pastors are called what? Priests. What do priests do? They sacrifice again and again and again. You sacrifice an offering of Christ, and they are the mediators. But here, Paul reminds us what we know must be true. The cross is only hopeful because it's empty. The cross is only hopeful because Christ rose from the dead. We celebrate this fact with an empty cross, a glorious reminder that an instrument of torture turned into something glorious when Christ conquered death and rose from the grave. And if Jesus is raised, then he is somewhere doing something, right? He, he didn't raise to be a spirit and kind of go off into spirit world. He was risen with a physical body. Look at this verse again who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So remember, Jesus was given this glorified body, a corporal body, which means the throne of God has a physical component to it because Jesus has a physical component to his resurrected state. I'm not willing to say he's just passed Pluto, or near some black hole out there on the other side of the galaxy, like like we can know where this physical place is. But I do know heaven, our eternal state, is very much described as a physical place. And Jesus has a resurrected body forever, even now. But rather than speculate about the location of God's throne, isn't it more important to realize what Jesus is doing? And that's Paul's emphasis here, right? Right? What is Jesus doing? The end of verse 34. He is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. And now what's behind this concept of someone interceding for us? I want you to turn as we close to Hebrews chapter seven. Hebrews chapter seven. This book is all about Jesus being better He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. And he's a better priest. He's a better mediator, a better go-between, between between God and man. And in Hebrews 7.23, we get this simple yet profound reason why we needed a better priest in Jesus. Hebrews 7.23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Weren't all the priests dying? Of course they were dying. That's why they were prevented from continuing in office, okay? That's why they were insufficient as priests. So he says, verse 24, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He he rose from the dead. He has this physical body. He has this ability to bring us to God always and forever. He's the only priest we ever need. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests, high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Therefore, Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to God's throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Profound mystery of mysteries. We ask God to help us grow. We expect God's grace to endure. We stand confident in spite of sin, and we quickly turn from sin to Christ because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, because Jesus is the only priest that we will ever need. So we confidently draw near to this throne of grace to receive grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy to help in every moment of every need. So we quickly turn from sin to the living Christ. We don't coddle sin. We forsake it. We confess it to Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father. And we know that God, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for us perfectly. We know that Jesus, too, prays for us perfectly. And so in... Final words, let us think about how Jesus prays for us. In John 17. In John 17, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Listen as we hear Jesus' words, His prayers for us. John 17:15: "I do not ask. Did you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them, make them more righteous in the truth, and your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is sitting there praying for us that we would grow in holiness, that we would be bold witnesses for the sake of the gospel. He continues, verse 20, I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Profoundly Jesus prays for church unity right here, doesn't he? Because brotherly love in the church family is how an unbelieving world is often confronted with the true love of Christ. And these types of prayers are directly offered to Christ now. But these prayers are not offered up for all humanity. These are only those offered up to those who belong to God, who are chosen. And so we are reminded again, even as Jesus' high priestly prayer, just how central it is that God is for us if we belong to him. He continues, verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are in one. God is for us. Who can be against us? In 2 Kings 6, the prophet Elisha is public enemy number one for the Syrians who are warring against Israel. Apparently, Elisha was getting top secret information from God. And the king of Syria comes to the city where Elisha is staying and completely surrounds the city, cutting it off from all supplies. But amazingly, Elisha remains calm. And when asked, why are you so calm, Elisha? He opens the eyes of the young man who is with him to see that as many horses and chariots surround him, the enemy has exponentially, or uh, God has exponentially more flaming angels and chariots around the Syrians. And so Elisha prays to God, asking the Syrians be struck with blindness. And they are. And he leads them all by the hand to the king of Israel and delivers them over to him. There are countless examples like that in scriptures that remind us of the very truth we saw today. If God is for us, who can be against us? If we believe this, our lives will start reflecting the change. You're going to start to ask God how you can grow. You're gonna expect God's grace to endure in your life. You're gonna stand confident in spite of your ongoing struggles with sin. And you're gonna quickly turn from sin to the living Christ, our great high priest. God's power at work in your life is greater uh, greater than striking any army blind. It's more enduring than raising Lazarus from the dead. God's power gives us hope for tomorrow, strength for the day, And confident always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the glorious truth that we've seen in your scriptures that show us and remind us that if you are for us, then certainly nothing can be against us. Lord, help us to be those who faithfully say again and again, I am with you, for this is our greatest hope, our only hope. And we pray these things in Jesus's holy and perfect name. Amen.